Lord, this morning we come to yet another one of those difficult passages in Leviticus 20. And uh, God, the, the only reason we come here is because we're convinced that all of Your Word is inspired of You and is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. Lord, that the man of God might be edified and built up and strengthened and equipped for every good work. Um, God, furthermore, we, we just know the, the profitability of preaching through books of the Bible. And Lord, I, I would pray that one of the fruits of, of this sermon series might be in all of us just a, a, a greater love for Leviticus, maybe an appreciation for that. And as we read through our Bibles, many try every year that, that Leviticus won't be the place to stop anymore. God, but, but perhaps in numbers, God, because of the, the lists of things there. God, but may we see beyond, God, Leviticus to Christ and to us. And so, Lord, I pray today, especially as we deal with just sensitive uh, topics again and difficult topics, I pray You'd be my strength. I pray You'd help us to see how this applies to us. God, that You and Your God mysterious way might might help us, God, to, to learn and grow. We pray also you prepare us again for the Lord's Supper as we, we do that, the six Sundays leading up to Easter, just celebrating and reminding us again of the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God, so be with us at this time, we pray. Amen. Well, one of the clearest verses in all the Bible regarding the Gospel comes in Romans six twenty three. And um, do you, any of you know Romans six twenty three, Jordan? For the wages of sin, she knows it. For the wages of sin, let's say it together. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through our sin, we earn our consequences, which is death. But through God's grace, we are given a gift. That is eternal life. It's the gospel, right? The wages of sin, what we earn with our sin, is death. But the gift that God gives through Jesus Christ is eternal life. And life and death are opposites. And whereas we die in our sins, we are given by God a life that never dies. Through faith and trust and belief in Him that we who deserve to die are, are given life. My message this morning is entitled, The Wages of Sin. Got to see an illustration of that this past week as Karen Gusky's mother passed away. And it was, uh, I think it was Thursday morning when the family was called. And they said, we're going to, you know, she's taking a turn for the worse. There's no hope. We're going to pull the tubes and just, just Wait. Wait for her to pass away. And I was privileged to be there with all of you, both of you two, and uh, Deb and Phil, just in that, in that room as we just listened to the gurgling breathing of the pneumonia and as we just waited for someone to die. As I talked and read scriptures with you and prayed with you, I counted a privilege to have been there and shared that, that moment. Because in that moment, life becomes clearer. Because we see that that's where we all will be someday. Perhaps a tragic accident will take you, but chances are you'll 
also be in a hospital room or in a, a nursing uh, facility someplace, breathing your last breath as your family is, is around you. And uh, one of the things I told the Gosky was that this is a living illustration of my sermon on Sunday that, that we're seeing right here the wages of sin. We're, and it's not necessarily that Mary Jane was a greater sinner than any of us in this room, but, but our, our lives, because of sin and in death, you remember when the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam, you may eat of any tree of the garden freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden you shall not eat, or you'll die. The very day you touch it, you will die. And indeed, Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit, and they died. Spiritually, right away, cast out of the garden, away from God's presence, and eventually they died Physically, and that's what Paul wrote in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is through Adam, sin entered the world. He was the, the portal through which, which the whole world was condemned. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And the very fact that we die shows that we are sinners by nature and by choice. Now, it's not that we're Without hope. Because Paul later on in, in Romans 5 speaks about the two men who had two acts and had two results. Adam had an act of disobedience that brought about death, but Christ had an act of obedience and righteousness which brought about righteousness and life to us. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam's sin brought sin and death to us. But the righteous life of Christ brings righteousness and life to us. Well, this morning as we come to our text, we're going to be looking face to face with death. Death as the result of sin. And I hope in my message that we, we see death clearly and we see the response to that. But we also come to cherish our life in Christ that's, that's much better. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 20. This week brings us into some familiar territory because many of the things in chapter 20 first appeared in chapter 18. Um, in fact, most of these things have already been mentioned. Uh, so I'm not even going to read the whole chapter for us this morning. But there, there's one thing in this chapter that wasn't mentioned in chapter 18. And therefore, that's where I want to focus our attention this morning. We've already seen it. It's over and over and over again. We see the consequences of sin, which is death. Over and over, this one shall die. This one shall die. They shall be put to death. Let, let me show you what I mean. Let's begin reading in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. <clears throat> Give your child and child sacrifice to this God, you shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do it all, close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech, and do not put him to death, 
then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. You see the death penalty there for child sacrifice. The whole congregation shall come out, pick up their stones, and throw them at the man. Now, normally what happened in those days is when the stoning took place, you took them to the edge of a hill, threw them down a hill, maybe break their legs from the fall, and then you take your stones and throw them over the edge and that they would, would kill. And, in fact, even look here, if, if, if Israel didn't do that, God Himself said, verse 3, that I am going to set my face against that man. So whether society brings that out, God is going to bring it out. Now, it's difficult to know what cut off means. Again, whether cut off is to kill that person or whether cut off is to just banish that person, we're not exactly sure. We've seen that several times in Leviticus. But the idea is this. If we fail in our punishment to that sin, then God will take care of that. Similar penalty for other sins. Look at verse 9. For anyone who curses his father or his mother... Kids, be careful what you say. Shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. So in other words, as a child curses, put to death by the congregation, it's not blood on the congregation's hand. It's blood on the the child's hand. Verse 10, if a man commits adultery with his Wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. The same pattern goes again over and over. In verse 11, we see incest. Verse 13, homosexuality. Verse 15, bestiality. And the penalty is always the same. It's death. It's death. Verse 11, both of them shall... Surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Verse 12, both of them shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Verse 13, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Verse 14, he and they shall be burned with fire. Verse 15, he shall surely be put to death. Verse 16, he shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. And then verses 17 through 21, though not quite as bad, they're going to be cut off, whether that's exile or killed by the hand of the Lord. We don't, we don't know, but... Verse 17, he shall bear his iniquity. Verse 18, both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Verse 19, they shall bear their iniquity. Verse 20, they shall bear their sin and they shall die childless. Verse 21, they shall be childless. There it is, a lesson. The wages of sin is death. In this chapter, God spells out sin. He spells out punishment. And particularly in this chapter, mostly It's just nasty sexual sin that I just have chosen not to read for you. You can read that on your your own at home if you want to. But the surprising thing in this chapter is how God deals with such sin. I mean, in our society, it's so different, right? What, What do we do with a sinner? One who breaks the law. There's a difference, by the way, between being a a sinner and being a, a lawbreaker. A law is what's punishable by your society. A sinner is what's breaking God's law, but isn't punishable in many ways. Now, sin is breaking God's law. But what do we do? We try to reform the sinner, right? And we send people to prison hoping that their time locked up will change their heart somehow. And they say, no, I don't ever want that. And, and reform them. Have you ever considered what we call our worst prisons? What do we call them? The state. Going to go to the state what? 
The state pen, right? The state penitentiary. Penitentiary that comes from like, uh, like the Catholic Church says we can pray and, and earn our way back to God by being sorrowful for our sin. When we send the state penitentiary, we're sending people to have them be sorrowful for their sin that they might come back kind of purged, if you will. Or correctional facilities, same things, right? Criminals are going to go and they're going to be corrected of their wayward ways. So we in America... No, want to change the behavior of sinful lawbreakers. But Leviticus 20, it's different. Rather than seeking reform, God just says, kill them. Warren Wearsby says, God gave His law to restrain sin, not to reform sinners. The penalties He imposed were for the purpose of upholding His law, not improving offenders. And oftentimes you see that if there's a, there's a transgression, it's not jail time, it's just restore it. Whether it's money, financial, somehow, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, just restore it and get on with life. Let's not have this big reformational time, which, by the way, parents learn from this. Long times maybe isn't so helpful, as opposed to just dealing with it and getting on with it. But here, sin is restrained, God says, when lawlessness is destroyed. But when they aren't destroyed, as we see in our society, many times it, it abounds. And particularly with the death penalty, if, if justice is slow, then criminals are encouraging that. Solomon observed, Ecclesiastes 8.11, when the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of men is fully set to do evil. We see that in our society today. As the court systems just drag on and on and on and on. It takes so long to process that. Just men in their heart, Fully said to do evil because they know the consequences aren't coming for years, if ever at all. But here in Leviticus 20, we see the offenses regarding the the death penalty and, and predominantly for deviant sexual behavior. And I just say this, what a timely word for us in America. What a timely word for us because these sins are our sins. Um, in fact, few of us are unaffected by this. We might think, oh, no, no, we're not affected by it, but, but we are. I mean, and just think about it. If we would follow this command in Leviticus 20, which, by the way, I don't think is applicable to America in, in any way since after the cross. In fact, I don't even think this is desirous after the cross to set up a society like this because Christ has fully satisfied this. We'll even see how Jesus deals with people who deserve death, according to Leviticus 20. But if we would follow this, you know what happened? Half of our population would probably be killed. Have been killed. Uh, let, let's just think about it. Verses 1 through 5, child sacrifice. I, I do believe that the direct application of that is abortion, where we sacrifice our children. Now, we, we may not sacrifice them alive on an altar someplace, but we kill them in the womb on the altar of inconvenience or on the altar of convenience however that is because the result of an unwanted pregnancy oh we don't want that so we'll just conveniently get rid of that pregnancy i believe that's the same thing and i i do believe according to the spirit of Leviticus 20 that that a death penalty is there 55 million abortions in America since Roe v. Wade, 1973. If every father and mother were killed, 
That would be a lot of our population. When it comes to adultery, 40% of first marriages end in divorce, as best I can tell. I don't know, that, that figure is debated. Say it's 30%, say it's whatever, 40%. And not all of them end in adultery, for sure. But enough of them do that 40%, even half of 40% is 20% of first marriages would deserve a death penalty because the punishment for adultery is death, verse 10. In our land is quickly adopting homosexuality as the norm. No longer is it being looked upon as sinful. In fact, now it's sin if you consider it to be sinful. And we, we all have been touched by that. We, you know, probably most of us, maybe all of us, know people in the LGBT lifestyle. Its pervasiveness is spreading quickly. Now, I don't know the percentage of those kind of people, but whatever, 2-3% of society. Leviticus 20 would have them dead. Now, lest we get too smug and think that, oh, you know, I've... I, that, those are sins for other people, not me. Well, the whole cursing of fathers and mothers, verse 9, anyone who curses his father's mother shall surely be put to death. That's just how high God upholds the, the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And I'm sure there are children in this room maybe who are along that line. But many children... In the world, certainly would never see adulthood seeing the way they speak about their parents. So if America followed Leviticus 20, our population would be significantly less. And that's simply an observation of the land around us. And I, and I, I, I would say this, is that we live in Canaan. We live in Canaan. The, the sins are like all around us. America was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics, and there still is a, a vestige of that, which is, which is better than, say, Europe or other places or India. Or, but, but still, we're losing that foundation a lot. We are a sinful generation. And, and, and perhaps today, before I just say it's out there, it's not inside here, it, 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 some of this is inside here. You know, I, I just think about women, maybe there's been an abortion in your past. Know that there's forgiveness in Jesus. Okay, know that there is, and that that can be done, and that can be forgiven. And certainly, since you have a death penalty in the Old Testament, everybody has a death penalty in the Old Testament. But that can be forgiven. Or if there's adultery in the past, or there's homosexuality in the past, just know that there, there is forgiveness in Jesus. But I suspect, knowing all of you, that, that most of this is is outside, or at least right now, you're not practicing that. You're not in that for most of you. I'm preaching the choir. I, I know that you know these are sins, and I know that many of you hate these sins. And so I, I, don't, I don't think it's um, worth our while in many regards just, just to pound these things as, you know, don't, 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 because for the most part, they're not applicable to us. But, but I, I do think, though, that there is another question. How do we live in Canaan? Maybe that's a better pastoral question to ask. How do we live in this land of vast abortions and vast adultery? Or, you know, say on the college campus with the hookup culture that is just 
you know, sexuality run rampant or with homosexuality? How do we live as followers of God in such a society? That's going to be my premise of, of application today because we don't live under the Mosaic Law. These, these sins aren't purged from our midst. They are right around our midst. And, and how do we do so? Especially when these people who are liable to the death penalty actually live and prosper and have great means and have great political pull. How, how do we live? Well, my first counsel advice is really my point zero, okay? Uh, it's not, not my point. Maybe it should have been my point one, but uh, we see exhortation to holiness. Let's abstain from these sins. To live differently than the world. Let's live a holy way. It's right there in our text, verses 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. See, right? I mean, this, this isn't this this is Leviticus, right? You shall be holy. You shall walk differently than the people of the land. You shall, you shall be a, a unique light. So certainly we should be a light to the world. But we've banged that drum so many times, I don't think I really need to, to bang that again other than to say the unique thing. Look at verse, um, verse 8. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. There we see the, the cleansing power, the, the, the making righteous and making holy work of God in the life of His people. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He says, here's the righteous path. Here's the holy path. That's the way that you should go. And living in Canaan, we should live a holy life. In verses 22 and following, continue the theme. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules to do them, that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. If you hear from my message a couple weeks ago, you remember the divine epicac that vomits you out. These same themes come up. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Now you remember those people who weren't driven out of the land, what a bad influence they were upon the Israelites. You remember that? As they didn't drive people out, they were there, they intermarried with them, and they brought Israel down. Just know that that is our danger. We live in Canaan with all this sinful influence around us. How easy it is to slip. We need to be vigilant. Verse 24, But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land. And I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. That is who has sanctified you, split you apart, made you different. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall make yourselves detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which crawls on the ground, which I have set apart to hold for you, which is unclean. This takes us back to chapter 11 and the eating laws. You say, why is he bringing us to the eating laws? You remember chapter 11 speaks about how you're going to make a distinction, how you're going to be different by eating differently. It's going to be more difficult to commune with these people because if you eat different than them, it kind of puts that separation between you. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from my peoples that you should be mine. Now certainly, my point zero, we should be holy. We should stand out as different from among the people. Walk in the straight path that God has given us. But I've got three points of application just pulling from the New Testament, just ways I think would be appropriate for us to abstain and be different, unique in this society. My, my first point is that we should pray 
So turn with me to John chapter 17. This is, of course, the high priestly prayer. The prayer that Jesus prayed shortly before He was um, delivered up to be crucified. And, and there are three sections to this prayer. The first section, first five verses, He, he prays to God for Himself. And then it's verses 6 through 19. He prays for his immediate disciples, his 11 who are still following him. And then in verse 20 through the end, he's praying for us, which is an amazing thing. John 17, I do not ask for these 11 disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's for us he's praying. But today I want to focus your attention on what he prayed for the disciples What he prayed for the 11, because I think it's applicable. And what he prayed for them, we ought to pray for ourselves. Just let's pick it up in verse 6. I'm aiming towards verse 15. But just to catch his heart. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Here was Jesus walking in the world. God gave him these 12 disciples. God gave them to him. He says, I've shown my name to these that you gave me. He said, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words you gave me, for they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. It's interesting here. It says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not, I'm not praying for the unbelievers, but I'm praying for these disciples, these whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I'm glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. There's an imminent death he's talking about there. And they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. No, she's saying, God... You're the one who works in us, so keep them in your name. Protect them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now... I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's that's ultimately his desires for the happiness of his disciples, the joy that they have. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, now we come to what I'm focusing on here, verses 15 through 17. He says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, But do you keep them from the evil one? They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's just finish it. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay? Jesus knew what was awaiting these disciples. Jesus knew that throw them out to the world, and they were going to be consumed and chewed up by the world, facing tremendous persecution. All of them but one died a martyr's death. It was only John on exile on the uh, island of Patmos who wasn't. The others, church tradition says, were, were killed various different ways. 
And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, don't take them out of the world. Even though they're going into this hornet's nest, don't take them out of the world. That's right where they need to be for the progress of the church. And so I just think about us. So it's, the, the prayer is don't take us out of America. Don't, don't take us out of Canaan. I think Jesus would pray. I think for us, we can pray. God, don't, don't take us out. Right? But keep us from the evil one. There it is. Let's keep us from Satan. Though we live in Canaan, though evil surrounds us on, on all sides, let us not lose hope because God is the one who can keep us and protect us and guard us. So that's why we pray, because God's the one that can guard us. Remember when uh, Jesus was there on the last night and Satan had asked permission to sift Peter. You've got to ask. God has us here for the reason. I think we could transform this prayer. Is this, oh Lord, don't let us out of Canaan, but keep us from the evil one. Lord, we're not of this world. This country is not our hope. We long for a better country. We long for heaven with all its purity and sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Right? So, so we're not of this world. We're, we're living for another kingdom. Even Jesus said, right, if my kingdom were this world, they'd be fighting. But we're not fighting because our kingdom is of another world. But the desire, verse 17, is to sanctify them in truth, right? Praying again for this holiness. God, we pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. Isn't this how Jesus taught us to pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Like, don't lead us into that, that wrong way, but, but keep us and protect us and keep us out of evil. And truth be known, perhaps prayer plays a more crucial role in your sanctification than you, you think about. If we'll ever be a people who keep away from such sins, it'll be God's grace. We need to pray for God's grace. And I, I just encourage you this. Don't, don't think about these deviant sexual behaviors, something that's, that's just out there. I mean, I just heard, I think it was last week, I heard of another pastor of a, I don't know how big his church was, maybe 500. I've listened to some tapes of his, listened to some sermons, read some stuff, good things, and he fell to adultery. It's like, you know, here, here's someone professing to know God falling. And I, I just think that, don't, don't ever think that any of those sins are beyond us. Don't think, oh, we don't have to worry about that. You need to worry every moment of every day living in America all the things bombarding you, and you go to work. I mean, I know many of you go to work, and you're the only believer there. There's no other encouragement there. So for 40, 50 hours a week, you're there surrounded by this stuff, how easy it is to fall. And I just say 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think that's what we should do. How do we live in this society? We pray. Pray for what? Pray for God to keep us. Pray that we would be sanctified in the truth, that we would walk a heavenly walk. All right, my second point is forgive. It's from John chapter 8, just back a few chapters. And here's where I, I looked at Leviticus 20 and just said, okay, so where, where's a New Testament example of something like that happening? And it's, boy, it's as clear as can be. Now, I know that many of the earliest manuscripts don't contain this section of Scripture here, but listen, there's nothing in this text that is anyways against the Spirit of Jesus and how He acted. It's totally consistent. He's full of grace and truth of this woman. The truth He spoke is upheld. It's right on. So anyway, chapter 8, beginning verse 53 from chapter 7, and they went each to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, 
Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? So you think about this woman being brought right there. And, and in verse 5, you know, they're quoting Leviticus 20, verse 10. So when they say back in the law, they're talking about the Levitical law that we just looked at today that we're reading about, that those who are, who are in adultery caught there, both man and woman shall surely be put to death. In this case, it's only the woman who comes. It's kind of interesting. The law clearly says both man and woman was there so so note that note also here that they didn't stone this woman according to the law you say why is that well because they were um like, like we are in some regards they weren't living under theocracy they were living under the the reign of rome and rome did not give them the ability to execute capital punishment that's why they brought jesus to pilate because they had no authority to kill they they could only say pilate why don't you you kill and so this is why they brought this concern to Jesus. And again, just trying to get him in trouble. I mean, you see there in verse 6, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So even then, there's this charge that, that you know, we don't, we don't do that anymore. But Jesus, he says someone should die. And that was kind of radical for them, even though it was Leviticus 20, which leads you to think about how often was this actually carried out. But they were trying to trap him, is what they were. And Jesus' response, I love it, was perfect. He bent down, verse 6, and wrote his finger on the ground. As to give, I think, in some regards, a dramatic pause. And they continued, verse 7, to ask him. He stood up and said, Let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And I just say this, church family. Ponder these words long and hard when you think about the sins of our society, abortion, adultery, and homosexuality. Before you throw your stone, examine your own life. And when you do that, hopefully it will give you a gracious compassion towards these people that you know that your sin deserves death just like their sin deserves death. What's the difference between you and them? Only that you believe and you're trusting in Christ to take you from that. And, and His Spirit has come in you to change you, to, to free you from some of those desires. And you, you want the Lord. That, that's the only difference. And it will help curtail how and in what manner you, you judge and condemn. I, I think about um, uh, the folks from Westboro Supposed Baptist Church that... You know, they're just, just out there picketing and hating. And I just say, you know what? How about you look at your own sin? And maybe that would, would curtail an, an attitude and the perspective. It was, it was really interesting. In our small group, we went over this passage last week. And um, a couple people chimed up and they said, yes, I work with a homosexual. I work with a homosexual. And um, in both instances, once it was known that they were a Christian, they bristled. Like, oh. It's like, what are they bristling at? They're bristling at... Just the, the, the Christians who just pounded on. He said, listen, I've known you for years. Have I ever 
condemned you or judged you or dealt you dealt with you wrongly? And the testimony is no. He says, well, I'm a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to love and serve and help and point people to Jesus. And I think it comes from just a heart of, of compassion that, that is, is there ready to forgive, ready to come. But this is what Jesus did. He forgave. Um, and once more, after saying, let him was without sin, throw a stone at her, verse 8, once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And he's kind of sitting, waiting around. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Now, it's interesting here. There's no repentance at this point from her. Maybe there was, maybe she's sorrowing, but Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm not condemning you now for this. I'm not condemning you. But he said then, directing them, go and sin no more. I just say what a great response this is. Uh, grace and truth balance perfectly. In, in John chapter 1, it speaks about how Jesus came full of grace and truth. And we see both of those fulfilled here. Grace to the woman, I don't condemn you. Truth, go and sin no more. In other words, don't continue in that lifestyle. You know it's wrong, so don't sin. I'm not condemning you. And I just would encourage you to seek a similar balance as you deal with people in our society. Be full of grace and be full of truth. And I would say that, that, that your response will, will be godly in the sense that both these things are balanced. Now, if you're anything like me, you always blow it. I mean, there have been times I've been so truth-heavy, I've just smashed people with it. And I think in a way, dishonoring Jesus. I mean, there's been some times I've just been so grace-filled, I've just overseen the sin and not spoken any truth. But silence is consent and letting the, letting the sin pass by. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not perfect. I'm not the example of this in any way. But I would say this. Model what Jesus did. Balance grace and truth. And then maybe sinners and adulterers, those who've had abortions and homosexuals won't bristle at Christians. Because the world needs that. That's what God gives. God gives grace and he gives truth. Grace that forgives, truth that proclaims. All right, well, let's look at my last point here. The wages of sin. Let's pray. Pray for us. Forgive. And that, and that's, that I guess, is coming, not a condemning way, but, but come in a, a forgiving, gracious way. Thirdly, reach out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, this is a passage that deals with sexual sin that takes us right back into Leviticus chapter 20. Paul de- describes the man who's sleeping with his Father's wife. Let's pick it up, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, probably a stepmother, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Okay, so just right there, there's a, there's a lot there. But the issue here is that Leviticus 20, verse 11 says, A man lies with his father's wife. He's uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Leviticus 20 explicitly condemns this. And, and yet the Canaanite church was celebrating this. He called them, verse 2, they were arrogant. Oh, look at this. I, 
I do believe the exact parallel of that is the modern liberal church of our day that not only tolerates sin in their midst, but actually celebrates it. Look at how open-minded we are. Look at these we've raised to leadership. Homosexuals, preachers, pastors, bishops. That's exactly what was happening here. And, and Paul says this, let him who's done this be removed from among you. See, you, you can't be a professing willful sinner and be in the church. You just can't, you can't be that. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to more, more of why that is. Because I do believe that it's the application of Leviticus 20. But Paul explains here, verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You say, Steve, that doesn't sound very forgiving to me. And I just say this, it's not. Because unrepentant sin, you cannot come in a forgiving way. And the issue here is that it's unrepentant sin in the church. That can't be. Because the church is, is the people of God today, just like Israel was the people of God back then. The church comprised of those following God. When Israel was a theocracy, it purged its midst by killing those people. We purge our midst by not letting them be. Be out. Be gone. Church discipline, if you will. And, and, and so with the coming of Christ, with the establishment of the church, under the, the establishment of a political entity like the, the Roman Empire or like the American government, the solution to a sinning member of the church isn't to kill them. But it is to say, get out. You're not welcome here. Because to keep them in the midst would affect everyone. I mean, it would, would affect us in our sin. As it says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. That it may be a new lump. Yes, you really are in leaven. For Christ is our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the leavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, a little sin in your camp will spread to all, but, but Christ changes all that. He, he cleanses all of us. He is the, the true leaven. Okay, and then he clarifies things down here in verse 9, which I hope, hope I'll do. I wrote to you in my letter, it's a previous letter that he'd written, not to associate with the sexually immoral people of Leviticus 20. Now, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, placing all those in the same category. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, and not even to eat with such a one. So in other words, what he's saying is, if someone's professing Christ and upholding these sins, have nothing to do with that. Have nothing to do with someone like that who professes a faith in God and yet fully lives an adulterous lifestyle. So, 
Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those outside the church whom are you, you to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among your midst. So he says, you know, those outside the church, let, let God deal with them. But at least we can deal with those inside the church, is what he said. So, so how do you deal with your homosexual employee at work? How, how do you deal with your neighbors who are living together but not married? How do you deal with your pro-choice relative? Well, here's what I say. Reach out to them. Share Christ with them. Tell them the story of Jesus. Show them the joy of Jesus. Tell them how Christ was crucified for your sins, according to the Scriptures. Tell them how He was raised again for your justification. And then show them what it means to follow Jesus. You you don't follow in their ways of sin, but you lead them and direct them in the ways of a holy life. You say, come after me. Let let me show you what true joy is about. It's living living my way. It's living a a life following God. You, You don't shun those outside the church. They're making no claims upon their life of being followers of God. See, they're outside the church. They're outside the camp. They're Canaanites. They need to know the love that Jesus gives. But if they're interested in Jesus, by all means, show them, bring them in, tell them about Jesus. Be glad to have those people here at church. But you're calling them to repentance. And you tolerate them while they're here or where they're seeking. You give people patience, give them a long leash. There's a, a testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, a homosexual who came to Christ. It was years. A pastor reached out to her with an olive branch, just loved her, cared for her, processed with her. It's years before breaking and coming to Christ. So it's not a, it's not a this Sunday or right now. You, you, you throw that out. Jesus was very patient with tax collectors and sinners. Now, if they come and profess a faith in God, and continue to want to hold on to that sin, I'd say just, it cannot be. And shun them. I remember we were reaching out to a, uh, a man um, at uh, Rockford College. And uh, this guy was from Nepal. And uh, just a great opportunity. And he, he professed interest in the Bible. And I was sharing things with him. This is probably what? Seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, sharing things with him the Bible. And he was coming to say, he, he was professing to believe it. Um, it was, was pretty exciting, but then find out that he's living with this girl, with this American 24-year-old girl praying on an 18-year-old Nepali foreigner. He's desperate. He needs something. His kind of security. It was an awful situation. She was an awful woman, so we met her, and I warned him. I, I said, that is bad news. You need to stay away from that. You're professing Jesus. That, that doesn't mix. And we hardly heard from him again, ever. Maybe just a little bit. But see, he, he wanted his sin and his profession of his faith. And as Paul says here, have nothing to do with that. But if someone is, is seeking and just saying, you know what, I don't believe. That's why I'm in my sin. That, reach out to that person. But, but see, once they come into the camp or profess to come into the camp, they hold on their sin, no way. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. Keep them out. Discipline them as a church. And I do believe that church discipline is... They're kicking him out saying, you're not welcome here. It is the same equivalent of Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20 
they were in the camp. They couldn't go out. Maybe this means cut off from the people. Maybe this means they're going to be out of the people of Israel, which is the parallel here. But you, you kill them, the death sentence comes. Israel's still pure. For us, it's just get out so the church can maintain its purity. I hope that that makes sense. I hope that I've given you a heart to, to reach out um, to those who, who need Christ. I, I want to finish by a, a longer illustration. You know, uh, Avon and I went away for a week in January to write this book or edit this book of salvation stories of people who had um, come to Christ. And we got many of your, many of your testimonies. We're trying to find time. It's, it's difficult to find time in the, the cracks of life. It's much easier when you're, you're off and gone. And we still have some work to do. We're still working on it. It's still hanging out there. It's kind of a burden I'm trying to get done. But here's one story I want to share with you. This man's not at our church, but he's a friend of ours. He says this, the story of my life up to this point, and, and we're hoping to fill the book with these kind of stories, and we have these kind of stories we're filling the book with. Some are shorter, some are longer, and um, you know, we're really praying that God will use this to help lead people to Jesus. But here's a, a wet appetite. This is chapter 6. I don't know what chapter it's going to be. but The story of my life up to this point has been nothing short of amazing. I don't claim to have the best story, but rather the best God who is more powerful than Satan's tightest grip. The youngest of three children, I grew up on a farm until my parents divorced when I was eight years old. I always knew I was different than the other boys, and I always felt the distance between me and my dad and brother. That distance grew greater when I was molested at six years old. Not having a healthy example of what love looked like between two males, there was no example of that in my home. I was drawn inward to my own thoughts of what love looked like. I was also drawn to other males, looking to find their approval, though most of that led to rejection. Being very confused about my identity, I found myself being drawn to physical affection for men. Even though I grew up attending church and church activities, I never knew that Jesus came to rescue me from my sinful heart and actions. For years, I blamed God for making me with same-sex attraction. Around 13, I had all but resigned to those thoughts and behaviors. By the time I was in high school, I had many encounters with other boys my age, all the while feeling guilt and regret for my behavior. My conscience knew it was wrong, but I suppressed it and justified my actions because I didn't know how to be any different. I literally hated myself and did not know how to deal with my feelings or know who to talk to about getting help. For me, drug and alcohol abuse became a way of escaping reality. Church, in my mind, was a place to go to feel better. And what I had done the previous about what I had done the previous night or week because the church I grew up in supported the gay agenda. I'd never heard about sin, Jesus Christ, or what would happen to those who remained living in these sinful behaviors. When I was 16, I told my mom, stepfather, I was gay. So I made them want to fix it by sending me to a counselor. That same summer, a friend invited me to a church with her, and though I rejected the invitation at the time, she had planted a seed that proved to be life-saving. Just one of the premises of the story of, of this book we're having is just the, the little things that you do that, that bear fruit long, down the road that you don't even know. But here, this little seed of being invited to church was a life-saving help for this man. She had an inner confidence and peace that I was in need of. Six months later, I finally accepted the invitation when my own situation had worsened. At her church, I heard the gospel for the first time and wanted Jesus to change my life. I was convicted of my sin and desired to read my Bible, pray, and attend youth group. I was excited that Jesus could help change me, but I felt ashamed to share the real me with others. Consequently, I never got too deep with anyone for fear that 
it would walk out on me. But I was trying to do all the right things except turn away from my sin. This is about as effective as putting clean clothes on right over dirty ones. Repentance finally happened my first semester at a secular college. I was trying to continue living in and justifying my immorality again, yet I believed that I'd still go to heaven. I knew all the right words, but my life and heart were far from him. Being challenged by some friends in the Christian club on my college campus, yes, I was trying to have my foot in both worlds. I gave up fighting the battle that I could not win by myself. I finally gave control over to Christ, as I still do every day, asking for his strength and truth to saturate my mind and change my desires. During the summer after that first year of college, I began attending a church. My mom and stepfather were saved, all of them still serving there today, and was baptized in front of the whole church, wanting to live solely for God's glory and feeling led to grow spiritually in the academic context. I transferred to a Christian college. And living around other normal guys in the dorm environment was invaluable to me. Here I became more of of who God had called me to be. I learned how to interact biblically with men. They showed me through their examples that affection with men could be healthy and non-sexual. Those relationships have been some of the most special to me to this day, and they, along with the caring support of other masculine men from church, supported, loved, and showed me what true manhood looks like and acts like. More than that, they accepted me as one of their own. In our sin, we think that others will reject us when they find out who we really are. But by grace, our Heavenly Father accepts us, and so do His children. Since that moment of surrender, after several years of refining, God has given me a wonderful, beautiful wife, two amazing boys. I get to be the husband I always wanted to be, but thought was impossible. I get to be the father I always needed and sought approval from, but who was absent and indifferent. All of this is possible because my Father in Heaven loved me and sent His most loved Son to die for me so that I could know real love and relationship with Him. God's saving power is greater than man's horrific offense. Of that fact, I am living proof. The sin of immorality and homosexuality is what God used to bring me to himself and what he'll keep used to keep me humble. I am a new creation in Christ and desire to share with all those who are stuck in the deceptively ensnaring homosexual world. He can do it. He said so in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not perceive neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And uh, that's the story of everyone who believes and trusts in Christ. That he changes us. Now some dramatically like that. We've got some dramatic testimonies in our book. And we have some testimonies that are less dramatic but no less miraculous as church kids have known nothing except God and Christ in this world has been rescued from those things but still is the power of God. And I just encourage you as a church family to, to reach out to these people. Okay? It's, it's not necessarily a formal church thing. It is where you are. I mean, we don't want to add another thing to your schedule, but where you work, where your neighbors are, just really think and strategize how you can be that light, how you can be that seed, how you can help someone come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Because we live in Canaan, and we need to see Canaanites come to Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray and deal with the Lord as we prepare once again to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. <clears throat> and Father, we are we are thankful for our Passover sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who died, 
right, during Passover, ask the Passover lamb. And Father, even as Paul points to that, that very fact here in 1 Corinthians 5 about how Christ is our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It's, it's that that we trust and it's that that we, we celebrate here, the supper with the, the bread and the cup, reflecting upon, thinking upon the, the death, resurrection of Christ. And Father, I, I would pray for those God who have sinned in this way, have never confessed it, never been right before you, or those who are uh, just right now, just know they're not living right. God, are even in our hearts, not knowing that we're living right, whether that's eyes for others or thoughts for others, whether that's reading or watching our entertainments, God, what, whatever it is, I pray, God, you would God, grant us repentance, God, turn us from those ways and cause us to, to see you and trust and rest in you by your grace. Father, we love you uh, because you first loved us. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. As we celebrate this, God, I pray that you search our hearts, that we might know true joy of genuine worship of you. God, the true joy of truly celebrating the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Prepare us for Easter two weeks from now as we focus on the, the resurrection with all of our hearts. So God be with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.